Okay, NAB podcast episode six, Righteous, Clean, and Completely Qualified. Here's the tease. We have to stop calling unclean what God has declared clean. That's the jarring message God delivered to Peter in Acts 10, 15 one day. Congratulations. Through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor, you've stumbled onto this delicious digital booyah base. Hosted by yours truly, hipster grandfather David A. Holland. Here, we explore the too-good-to-be-true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually launched 2,000 years ago. A new covenant, a better covenant, based on better promises. So, check your religion at the door. Grab a Bible, grab a beverage, gird your loins. This is the new and better podcast. All right. That's right. Episode six. I said it. This podcast was launched just a few weeks ago, and I've already released five previous episodes out there into the wild. And in each of those episodes, we've explored a different facet of the new and better covenant based on better promises. That one Jesus inaugurated through his death, resurrection, and ascension to the throne of heaven. And today's episode is no exception. In fact, today brings you a huge key to experiencing a life of fruitfulness, rest, peace, and power. And I'm not over-promising here. This is a big, big deal. It's a game changer. The believers who internalize what we're going to talk about today have greater intimacy with God and pray with greater efficacy. So, are you interested in upgrading the quality of your relationship with the God of the universe? Any interest at all in seeing more things change for the better when you pray? Well, if the answer to either of those questions is no, my next question is, what's wrong with you? Seriously. What rational believer wouldn't jump on a key to connecting more closely with the creator of the universe, who also happens to be an extraordinarily kind and loving father? Who among us doesn't want to see our prayers have more effect on the circumstances of the people we love? Well, that key centers around something I've dubbed heart confidence. Heart confidence before God. And heart confidence comes directly from rooting your identity firmly in what the Bible clearly and emphatically says about your right standing before God under the new covenant. Now look, many believers were raised in well-meaning religious traditions that emphasized a certain type of humility. And don't get me wrong, genuine humility is indeed an important spiritual quality. Biblical humility Authentic humility flows naturally from an awareness of how utterly powerless, helpless, and lost we all are apart from Jesus. It comes from being mindful of the truth that Jesus declared to his disciples in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. However, many Christians have been taught that even in Christ, they remain worthless, miserable, lowly, sinful scum. Now, this brand of false humility causes us to pray like beggars. We don't come boldly to the throne of grace, as the writer of Hebrews exhorts. That's Hebrews 
Instead, we slink into God's presence on our bellies if we come to him at all. Now, we touched on this a couple of episodes ago when we explored the seven exchanges we make at the cross. One of those exchanges was that we exchange our sin for Jesus's righteousness. Another was that we exchange our shame for his glory. Now, Christians with a sin-conscious, shame-centered mindset tend to instinctively avoid engaging the Father who loves them. And when they do engage him, they have difficulty receiving from him. They expect a little, and they get precisely what they expect. Because expectancy is a fruit of faith, and your faith is your spiritual arms to receive what God is extending toward you. Now, you don't want short puny, stickly receiving arms. A new covenant understanding of the believer's authority and position in Jesus will lead you to a very different mindset and a whole new level of praying. And that's what you're about to discover. But first, page two. Okay, if you're listening to this podcast on any of the audio podcast platforms like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, then you need to know that there's a video version available over at my YouTube channel. In case you want the complete sensory experience of this content, which includes my big round Charlie Brown slash Winston Churchill head, plus graphics and images and such. But you'll find a lot more over there other than just this podcast. You'll find a wealth of other shorter form stuff there as well, including exclusive sneak preview excerpts of my books. So, you should probably run, not walk, your clicky finger over there and subscribe. Now, we're talking about a game-changing paradigm shift, the power of something I call heart confidence before God. And let's start this revelation with a scripture. Let's look at 1 John 3, 19 through 22. And we'll start in the NIV. That scripture passage says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Again, that's 1 John 3, 19 through 22 in the NIV. Okay, now let's back up and break this baby down a bit. First, notice that it says, quote, this is how dot, dot, dot. We set our hearts at rest in his presence. This, my friend, is your objective. This, having your heart at rest in God's presence, is your inheritance, your birthright. Knowing that you belong to the truth, that is, belong to Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and having your heart be at rest in the presence of the purest, holiest, most powerful, most awe-inspiring being in this or any universe is the objective. And as a fallen, broken, fallible, frail, created little being, calm, confident rest is not what you would normally expect your heart condition to be when in the presence of such a God, right? And yet, John says this is the goal. And then 
He tells us how it happens. By the way, if the Bible points you to something that sounds unspeakably wonderful and then says this is how, well, maybe we want to pay attention. First, he says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. In other words, if you're feeling sheepish in God's presence that some dark secret of yours is going to be exposed, well, guess what? He already knows about it and he loves you anyway. The truth is God meets us where we are, loves us where we are. It's like Jesus touching the lepers who came to him for healing. God's love embraces us in our sin-diseased state with our desperately wicked hearts. And then we are transformed by his touch. His love is greater than our hearts. Oh, you of the condemned, unconfident heart before God, do you really, really think your heart is greater than him? Do you really imagine that your assessment of your condition is more accurate than God's? That your sense of disqualification can overwhelm his choice to see you as qualified in the perfection of his son? Really? Well, then the passage continues. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, that's a key word, and receive from him anything we ask. Now, this middle section of the passage reveals a powerful, frequently misunderstood spiritual principle, namely that your ability to receive from God is directly tied to the level of confidence in your heart as you approach him in prayer. This is where I derived the term heart confidence. Praying with a heart of confidence before God creates an assurance that you have the things you've asked of him. Of course, there's an inverse corollary to this assertion. If you come to God with a heart condemning you, it is very difficult for you to receive what God has already willingly provided. If you come to him feeling unworthy, disqualified, and judged because of your mistakes and failings, your receiver is severely limited and possibly broken entirely. You've got those short, stickly faith arms I mentioned at the top of this podcast. But... If, on the other hand, you approach God boldly and confidently because you know you're coming not on your own merits, but in Jesus' merits and in his righteousness, well, your receiver's big and fully functional. The writer of Hebrews had this very thing in mind when he wrote, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at our time of need. That's Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 in the New American Standard. And then again, a few chapters later, we read, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Again, in the New American Standard, 
We'll revisit both of those uh, scriptures in another translation later on in this podcast. Again, the goal, as the first verse we examined in 1 John noted, is to have our hearts at rest in his presence. As you prepare to come to the Lord, just do a quick heart check. Is it condemning you or do you feel even the slightest twinges of reluctance or hesitance about coming before God's throne of grace? Well, if so, then just take that as a signal to put yourself back into full remembrance that you're not coming in your own righteousness. You have Jesus' righteousness because he took your sinfulness upon himself. Is the Holy Spirit bringing some habit or practice or attitude to your attention? Well, then correct and adjust and keep moving forward toward your loving Heavenly Father. Remember that you're in Him, in Christ. In fact, according to Galatians 3.27, you've been clothed with Him. Now, this should produce confidence, a heart at rest, even boldness. Now, All of this sounds too good to be true, right? I get it. There has to be a catch, right? Well, at the end of that passage in 1 John chapter 3, that's where we started, we come to what looks like that catch. Or at least we think we do when we read it in one of the popular English translations. What's the catch? Well, let's back up and read it through to the end of the thought. Dear friends, If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Aha! We knew it, right? It turns out all this confidence and answered prayer comes as a result of keeping his commandments and doing what pleases him. So it's not grace. It's a reward. If we take this at face value... Confidence and answered prayer are part of a transaction in which we provide the currency of obedience and good works, and God responds by dispensing some answered prayer. And when we read that last bit, every religious, legalistic, performance-oriented impulse in our souls says, yes, it's not a gift. It's a reward. I have to earn it, by golly. And boy, oh boy, do we love to try to earn This seems to suggest that our qualification isn't based on Jesus' righteousness at all, but rather our own. Well, here's the problem. Keeping his commandments and doing what pleases him is a bar you'll never get over consistently enough to ever have confidence before God. Trust me. So, let's examine that last sentence a little more closely. We have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. The word because there is doing a lot of work in that sentence. It's doing all the heavy lifting. Now maybe we should look at the underlying Greek word that's translated because. I'm telling you, this word is a real hottie. Literally, it's the Greek word hati, H-O-T-I. And it's a conjunction. You remember your ninth grade English, right? A conjunction is a connecting word, like and and but, or yet, or for, or so. Well, hati appears 1,293 times in the New Testament. It's a conjunction. Conjunctions appear all the time. Well, that's almost 1,300 appearances, and yet it's translated because only in 173 of those instances. 
That's about 13% of the time. More than four times as often, 612 times, Hati is translated that. And if you're keeping score at home, that's 47% of the time for that as compared to 13% for because. And then another 212 times, Hati is translated some other conjunction such as and, for, so, etc. So, why did almost all English translators land on because for Hati in this instance? Well, there's a little something you need to know about the process of Bible translation. And here's something I wrote along those lines on Facebook a while back. Yes, all scripture is inspired. I'm sorry. I wrote, yes, all scripture is God-breathed and infallible and inerrant in the original manuscripts. In contrast, Bible translators are human and therefore flawed and fallible. All of them. Here's the thing. Every translator brings a lens to his or her work of translation. That lens is their pre-existing theological assumptions. Translating Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic to English is not like math. Words in those languages had multiple meanings, just as many modern English words do. So, what informs the choice? Clues from the context, of course, and theological presuppositions. A great example is the challenge associated with translating words like gay, G-E, and cosmos in Greek. The Greek word gay can mean soil or land in the sense of a territory or nation, or the earth, as in the whole planet, or just dirt. So which is the right choice? Context often provides some good clues, but context occasionally leaves room for more than one possibility. For example, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus th uses the word gay three times, and most translations render it earth once and land twice in the same discourse. Is that correct? Maybe. The thing is, theology, and often a subset of theology called eschatology, informs such choices. It all adds up to this. I don't recommend that anyone use just one translation of the Bible. And all translations and paraphrases should be read with the understanding that the human beings who chose those English words might not have gotten it quite right 100% of the time. Which in turn makes it super helpful that sites like BibleHub.com and BibleStudyTools.com and, and others provide easy-to-use interlinear helps and concordances that allow you to see the underlying words in the original languages and the variety of meanings that they can carry. So when it comes to Bible translations, more is better. There's safety in numbers. Now, back to Hadi. Why, in this case, do all the translators opt for the minority option because instead of one of the more common options like so or that or and? I'll answer that question in a minute, but first, let's look at what a difference one word can make in the meaning of a sentence like that. Let's look at the sentence at question, 1 John 3.22. First, here's the original as it's translated most of the time. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Now, let's swap that out with another reasonable conjunction. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God 
and receive from him anything we ask, and we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Well, what a difference that makes. So why did the translators land on because here? Religious lenses. Those theological presuppositions I mentioned earlier, I'm talking about the religious impulse to earn what we get from God, to merit, to deserve. This impulse is as old as the Pharisees. It's seductive pull was why Paul wrote the book of Galatians for crying out loud. It makes perfect sense for the translators to make a restful heart and answered prayers conditional upon works. In spite of everything Paul's letters and the writer of Hebrews reveals about how our standing with God is based solely on who Jesus is and what he did. What if that because is causing us to confuse cause and effect? We view doing all the things as a cause that earns us answered prayer. But what if those things are an effect of having a restful, confident heart before God? You see it? And look, friend, even if that because is the right word here, we don't have to wonder about what Jesus' commands are. We don't have to wonder what pleases him. It's a very short list. The very next verse contains it. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Period. Full stop. There it is. Believe in his name, love one another. Now, if we follow this river back up to the headwaters, John started out by talking about having our hearts at rest in the presence of the Father and having confidence before him. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. And as a result, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And what he commands is believing in him and loving one another. When you translate this verse without the lens of works-based religion, doing the things that are pleasing in God's sight become an effect, not a cause. An effect of being in restful connection to God. This is that game-changing key to receiving in prayer. Namely, understanding the principle of heart confidence. That passage reveals a powerful but frequently misunderstood spiritual principle, namely that your ability to receive from God is directly tied to the level of confidence in your heart as you approach God in prayer. If you come to your father with your heart condemning you, it's just difficult for you to receive what God has already just pushed across the table toward you. So the key to receiving in prayer is understanding the principle of heart confidence. What does that look like and sound like when you approach God in prayer? Something like this. Father, I come to you clothed in your beloved Son, and therefore come to you confidently. I'm not coming in my own righteousness. I have Jesus' righteousness because he took my sinfulness upon himself. You know everything about me, my darkest secrets and my worst impulses, and you love me anyway. I declare, therefore, that because Jesus is my righteousness, my heart does not condemn me. No, it is at rest in your wonderful, loving presence. And because my heart does not condemn me, I know I have and receive all that I ask, as well as all that belongs to me 
in Jesus. We'll unpack this truth a little bit further in just a moment, but first, page three. Hey, here's just a gentle, friendly reminder here to go get my newest 55-day devotional, Praying Grace for Women. It's filled with insights and revelation along the very same lines we're exploring today. It will help you or a beloved woman in your life renew your mind or her mind to the truths that will cause your heart to be at rest in his presence. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about having our hearts at rest in God's presence. presence confidence before God. Boldness even. So, let's look at Hebrews 10, 19-22 again, but this time in the message paraphrase. The message captures this beautifully. So friends, we can now without hesitation walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice, acting as our priest before God. The curtain into God's presence is his body, so let's do it. Full of belief, confident that we're presentable inside and out. As we've seen, that confident expectancy before God is a major key to receiving from him in prayer. However, for most believers, their approach to God's throne to ask for help or favor is encumbered by dozens of disqualifying thoughts. I've sinned. I haven't done enough. I haven't followed through on that commitment. I haven't had a quiet time in weeks. I yelled at my kids. Other people get answers because they're better Christians. Now, amid this routine hailstorm of self-accusation and self-condemnation, many believers just give up on even making a request of God. They tell themselves well, they need to get their act together a little bit more, become a little more deserving first, and then they'll petition God for some help. And those who do manage to make it to God's throne slink in sheepishly, laden with guilt and that overwhelming sense of unworthiness. And so when their prayers prove to be ineffective, they're not at all surprised. It means it's vital to guard and protect your heart confidence because it is the key to your connection with God. When convicted of sin, confess it. First John 1, 9 it. Count it as covered and paid for by the blood of Jesus and mentally reassert your legal standing as righteous before God. It's also helpful to just continually renew your mind to the wonderful truths about Christ's finished work on the cross. Why? Because through that work you qualify. In Christ you qualify for bold, confident access, for connection, for favor, for blessing, and for help in time of need. Still not convinced this is appropriate? Well. Let's take a look at that passage from Hebrews 10 one more time, this time in the Passion Translation. And now we are brothers and sisters in God's family because of the blood of Jesus, and he welcomes us to come into the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm, boldly and without hesitation. For he has dedicated a new life-giving way for us to approach God. For just as the veil was torn in two, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to him. And since we now have a magnificent high priest to welcome us into God's house, we come closer to God and approach him with an open heart, fully convinced that nothing will keep us at a distance from him. For our hearts have been sprinkled with blood 
to remove impurity, and we have been freed from an accusing conscience. Now we are clean, unstained, and presentable to God inside and out. That's verses 19 through 22. You can have total boldness and confidence to enter God's holiest presence, offering a heart wholly devoted to him. This boldness and confidence is really simply a matter of coming into agreement with God. We have to stop calling unclean what God has declared clean. That's the jarring message God delivered to Peter in Acts 10.15 one day. Very early in the life of the church, the Apostle Peter had a remarkable vision that completely altered the course of Christian history. In the 10th chapter of Acts, we read how the former fisherman was praying on a rooftop when he saw heaven opened up and a sheet descending before him. On that sheet were many animals that the Levitical dietary laws declared unclean. As a devout Jewish follower of Jesus, Peter instantly recognized these creatures as forbidden and defiling to even touch. Thus he was shocked to hear a voice from heaven commanding him to kill and eat them. Of course, Peter protested. In response, the voice of the Lord issued the command contained in that scripture I just read. In the New American Standard, that command is rendered, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy or what God has declared clean let no one declare unclean the Spirit of God could very well say the same thing to you and me today ask the typical believer if he or she is holy and you're likely to get a weak half-hearted disclaimer laden response that ranges somewhere between not exactly and oh my goodness no ask are you pure and the responses will be similarly sheepish this in spite of the fact that the word of god is clear and unequivocal if you are in christ god has declared you holy clean and pure god's declared you righteous follow the command that he issued to peter stop calling unclean what he has declared holy Pray, Father, forgive me for ever calling unclean that which you have declared clean. Just say, thank you for the complete cleansing I've experienced through the blood of Jesus. By your grace, help me renew my mind and realign my thinking to this reality. And I will reject the condemning voice of the accuser. Now it's time for takeaways. Dear one, in Jesus, you are righteous, clean, and completely qualified. Renew your mind to those realities, and as you do, you'll begin to find that your heart is at rest in God's presence. That you come to him easily, readily, at any moment of the day or night. You'll also find that as your confidence before him grows, you'll enjoy your relationship with him in ever-increasing degrees. And that, my friend, was the point. As I'm fond of saying, God did not send his only son to restore you to good behavior. He sent Jesus to restore you to himself. Think about it. That's it for this outing. Join me here next time for the new and better podcast. I'm David